Uh, I wouldn't be the Friends of the Book Arts Press if I weren't selling something. It is just barely possible that there are people in the room who have not received an advertisement, probably several, for the Proceedings of the Fine Printing Conference held at Columbia University in 1982, a subject on which I know many of you are bored to stupefaction. There is a prospectus advertising the Proceedings of the Fine Printing Conference in Columbia in multiple copies up here. Grab one after the lecture if you don't, if you don't have one and you're interested. The proceedings itself looks like this. There'll be a copy uh, down in the lounge. They're for sale in the SLS office or by mail for $10 postpaid, a bargain. Otherwise, I have only to say uh, for those in Rare Book School that the normal custom of the Friends of the Book Arts Press, which sponsors many lectures here at the School of Library Service, is to have our lectures in 523 The Lounge and have our receptions thereafter in room 502, the Book Arts Press. But the Book Arts Press, those of you who have stuck your heads in down the hall on your way to and from lectures or whatever, is in the process of extensive reconstruction so that it's difficult even to discover that there are three 19th century printing presses in there plus a great deal of other equipment as well as Robert Malewski toiling away in the back quarter. Those of you who have not seen the press and would like to do so tomorrow, Malevsky will be there working, Robert Malevsky. Stick your head in and, and ask if you can look around. And if you're really a diehard, come and get me and I'll show you what it is that we do there for a living. Otherwise, uh, for those of you who were here last night, I hope you'll all agree with me that tonight we have a solid medium. I certainly hope so in any event. Our speaker this evening is John Cole, executive director of the Center for the Book in the Library of Congress. And what we know, and what he doesn't know, is that uh, one of the remorseless surprises on such occasions is that the speaker to audiences in Rare Book School gets a Rare Book School t-shirt. There is no subject to which a member of Congress may not have reason to refer. Thomas Jefferson said that in 1815, broke at Monticello, trying to sell his library to the Library of Congress, to the Congress actually to reconstitute the Library of Congress. Jefferson's statement, that flattering statement, is, st is the rationale, really, for the expansion of the scope of the Library of Congress's collections and its activities from Thomas Jefferson's day to the present day. And to this day, when the Library of Congress goes to the Congress asking for money for new programs, of course we use perhaps an, an updated form of Jefferson's very flattering statement. There is no subject to which Congress may not have reason to refer if Congress is to do the job, the proper job of governing our country. It's a wonderful statement, it's a wonderful rationale, it's a wonderful way for the Library of Congress to make the point to the Congress and to the country that it serves the country by serving the Congress well, and we often remind the Congress that at least we hope that their interests are as widespread as the Library of Congress's collections. 
Uh, my theme tonight is the Library of Congress in the 19th century. Uh, I will be talking about how and why, this is a sketch, a brief sketch, how and why the Library of Congress grew from a small legislative library in the U.S. Capitol at the beginning of the 19th century into a national institution one century later, a national institution that was not only this country's largest library, but also, for better or for worse, the unofficial National Library of the United States. Emphasis on unofficial, emphasis on National Library with a small n. I will return to that. The story really combines historical circumstance, the growth of cultural nationalism in the United States, several strong personalities I will tell you about, introduce you to if you don't know them, in addition to Thomas Jefferson, healthy dose of congressional pride in its library, and even on occasion, presidential whim. The story begins in 1800 when Congress in the city of Philadelphia was on the verge of its move to the new national capital, and naturally they provided for a library for themselves to be built in the U.S. Capitol building on Capitol Hill and designed primarily for legislative purposes to support Congress in its needs and of course this meant that the first books which came from England were legislative books, history books, things that you normally would, would expect to find in a parliamentary library. But from the very beginning we had one of these twists that makes the Library of Congress different and hard to describe and really in some ways an, an irrational place when you attempt to compare it to any other institution. Because from the beginning it was the President of the United States that had the power to appoint the Librarian of Congress. The power to appoint the head of the legislative library in the legislative branch. Furthermore, it wasn't until the end of that century, of the 19th century, until Congress had anything to say about who was librarian. It was at the end of the century that the Senate uh, had got the power by law to uh, confirm the president's choice. Now, the executive branch then, and I will try to move fast through the first part of this uh, 19th century as I describe LC and its history, the executive branch then from the very beginning had a claim on the use of the Library of Congress because the president and the vice president according to the first law, could use it. And it wasn't long before the executive agencies all uh, got in on the act. And by the 1830s, laws were passed allowing the, well, it starts out the, the Department of Treasury and War State, and pretty soon the executive branch was able to use the Library of Congress. Jefferson's library was received by a man named George Waterston. Now, uh, what had happened, and I'll just remind you, was that there was a, a bit of a skirmish. It was called in this country the War of 1812. And in 1814, the British invaded our capital and uh, destroyed a good part of the capital and burned, really, the, the, what was in the Library of Congress, which was a small collection of about 3,000 volumes then. It was in response to this that Jefferson made his, his offer, and the Congress uh, did buy the Jefferson's library. Now, George Waterston was um, a local literary figure in Washington who was the first full-time librarian of Congress. Uh, and he soon extended the use of the Library of Congress to the public. The public could come in because George Waterston said they could. 
and make use of the books in the Library of Congress. They couldn't borrow books at this early debate, at this early time. Uh, in this period, I guess I should make the point that it wasn't a sure thing that Jefferson's library would even be purchased to recommence the Library of Congress, because you have this curious congressional attitude towards its library, which started right there in the debates over whether or not the Jefferson Library should be purchased. Uh, the opponents of the purchase, by and large, did oppose it because they were Federalists who objected to, first of all, Thomas Jefferson himself. Uh, secondly, many of them objected to uh, the, foreign the number of foreign language books that were in the Jefferson Library, uh, particularly the literary and philosophical works by people like Voltaire and other French revolutionaries. Uh, others objected to the cost that Jefferson needed the money, as I pointed out, and uh, the cost, which was a figured, uh, was arrived at after uh, it was evaluated, was $23,950 for 6,487 volumes. In other words, less than $4 a volume for Jefferson's library. Uh, but that was a high cost for some of the congressmen who, combined with these other reasons, objected to the purchase, and the vote was only 81 to 71. But the uh, but with the acquisition of the Jefferson Library in 1815, the Library of Congress was really reestablished with a vengeance because its size was more than doubled. And furthermore, Jefferson's subversive volumes expanded the Library of Congress's scope, uh, in Jefferson's phrase, into a most admirable substratum for a national library. So there is the second wonderful Jeffersonian phrase that we still pull out of the the hat every once in a while when we, we want to justify uh, the expanded scope of the Library of Congress. Librarian Waterston always was a quick person with a pen. There was a fire in the Library of Congress in 1825, and the librarian composed the following verse for a local newspaper. The Congress Library has been on fire, but very little damage is sustained. By error only, prudence we acquire, tis well experience is so cheaply gained. Now, Librarian Waterston was removed from office in 1829, <laughs> but it was not for his poetry. It was for his politics. He was a fervent Whig, and he had no chance of keeping his job during the democracy of the newly elected president, Andrew Jackson. But Waterston, for the fun we can poke at him, uh, took the job very seriously and the, the Library of Congress was a lively place in this immediate period after the Jeffersonian purchase. Things changed rapidly, though. President Jackson first offered Waterston's former job to one Charles P. Tutt. But after due consideration, Mr. Tutt decided that he preferred an appointment as the U.S. Navy agent in Pensacola. That's a comment on the Library of Congress and its status in spite of these Jeffersonian beginnings uh, at around 1829. Uh, Mr. Jackson's second choice, a man named John Silva Meehan, a local printer and a loyal Democrat, did take the job, and he held it for 32 dull, passive years. So in spite of the Jeffersonian potential, the Library of Congress moved really into the doldrums during the middle part uh, of the 19th century. There was, however, plenty of action on the library scene in Washington, only it was at the Smithsonian Institution. In 1938, Englishman James Smithsonian 
Smithson, excuse me, bequeathed half a million dollars to the U.S. for the increase and in diffusion of knowledge among men. When the Smithsonian was finally created in 1846, there was a debate as to how that money should be used. And a number of congressmen, and interestingly enough, most of them were on the Joint Committee on the Library, which had responsibility for the Library of Congress. Many of these congressmen felt that a the Smithsonian money should be used to create a national library. Uh, the new secretary of the Smithsonian, Joseph Henry, didn't think so, but a compromise was reached when the Smithsonian was created in 1846. Some money would go to build a big library, and some money would go for scientific research and diffusion of knowledge. Then Charles Coffin Jewett came on the scene. Jewett was the librarian at the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, he was hired as the Smithsonian's first librarian, and I think when Joseph Henry agreed to hire Jewett, he thought there might be trouble, uh, and indeed, eventually there was. Jewett, with support from several of these members of Congress, did his level best to turn the Smithsonian Institution uh, into a great national library modeled on the British Museum Library. There was a lot of correspondence in this period, uh, and the British Museum Library is the model, uh, not only the model that uh, Jewett attempted to follow at the Smithsonian, it also turned out to be the model which another librarian, uh, Ainsworth Rand Spofford, eventually followed at the Library of Congress. But there were several interesting twists here. One is the role that was played by Henry Stevens of Vermont, who, of course, by then uh, was England and was uh, Panizzi's book buyer uh, and built those Americana collections at the uh, British Museum Library. And there's correspondence uh, between Stevens. Stevens, it appears, also was instrumental in Jewett getting his job at the Smithsonian uh, Library. And in the meantime, uh, Henry Stevens, dispensing knowledge, gossip, uh, all at once, was writing Jewett once he started at the Smithsonian, saying, here's what Panizzi is doing. Uh, you must use the British Library, the British Museum uh, Library, as your model. And I can just testify to how wonderful it is. And Stevens was in the, the reading room, in fact, timing how long it took to get books, and very delighted with the results, and passing this on to Jewett. And lo and behold, Jewett, of course, would write back and say, oh, I do think this is wonderful. It's terrible that Mr. Panizzi is in the trouble he's in right now because he is the greatest librarian. And in fact, my national library at the Smithsonian will be modeled on the British uh, Museum Library. There were four components in Charles Coffin Jewett's plan. Let me run through them very quickly because they're, it's quite interesting related to what happens at the Library of Congress. The first one was that Jewett recognized the importance of copyright. And of course, we immediately start thinking of Panizzi and, and what he had done at the British Museum Library. Jewett recognized that a comprehensive collection of American publications accumulated through the copyright laws, of course, was the natural basis for a national library. Uh, the second part of that would be that he, Jewett, expected a generous part of the Smithsonian endowment to go to continue to build that library. Another component in Jewett's plan was a general catalog of holdings of all American libraries, which would be made possible by reproducing catalog inform cataloging information for individual titles from stereotype blocks. Uh, a third component, back to Panizzi, was a uniform set of cataloging rules. And finally, Charles Coffin Jewett was 
really Mr. Something in the world of American librarianship in these years because he recognized the need for leadership. And between 1847 and 1853, when the first conference of American librarians was held, Jewett himself assumed that role of leadership. He called the conference. He spoke at the conference. He got a standing ovation in 1853 in the New York conference when he stated that, in fact, the Smithsonian Institution was the National Library and would continue to be the National Library for this country. Six months later, he was fired by Joseph Henry. Uh, Joseph Henry was suspicious of Jewett all along. He found out that Jewett was, in fact, planting articles, all of George Waterston, I guess, in the Washington newspapers, uh, trying to build his case to get a larger portion of the Smithsonian endowment for the Smithsonian. And Joseph Henry felt very strongly that the proper role of the Smithsonian Institution was the increase in diffusion of knowledge through scientific research and investigation and through publication. And it most certainly was not to use the Smithsonian Endowment to build a huge national library. But Joseph Henry thought a national library was important, and he just looked up Capitol Hill and saw the Library of Congress there, and he said, that's where it should be. It just so happened that during that period, there was nobody at the Library of Congress that had the slightest interest in this. But it didn't take long until there was a, an important change, because in 1861, a new assistant librarian was added to the seven-man staff of the Library of Congress, which was up in the Capitol in the West Front, and you can see the area where the library was in those days. Um, this was an ambitious young man, the new assistant uh, librarian. He was a former Cincinnati bookseller and newspaperman named Ainsworth Rand Spofford. Spofford was, a, a, as I said, a bookseller. Uh, when he agreed to come to the Library of Congress as assistant librarian for a man named, assisting a man named John Stevenson, who was a Lincoln appointee, who was a surgeon from Terre Haute who spent most of his time on the battlefields in the Civil War and was happy to hire Spofford because Spofford would take him off the hook and run the library while Stevenson did other things in which he was more interested. But as soon as Spofford came, he said, essentially, this is the National Library. Um, and he immediately set to work making the Library of Congress fit his vision. Spofford had written about libraries as a newspaper man in Cincinnati and had, in fact, written about copyright. And it's interesting to see that the evolution of his thought. He'd written about the history of public libraries in England. Uh, he knew about the British Museum Library. And again, the British Museum Library was his model. He also immediately recognized this difficulty with the copyright situation in the United States. Uh, the story of copyright deposit is a complicated one, uh, but essentially copyright registration and deposits were handled through the, a complicated system of the district courts, uh, the patent office up until 1859. From 1846, when Jewett was at the Smithsonian, until 1859, however, Charles Coffin Jewett got the law changed, and in these days I'm going to be talking about changing laws, and in those days you got the law changed in ways that seem to be a little less difficult, a little less difficult than now, for a deposit copy for library use to go to both the Smithsonian and to the Library of Congress during the years 1846 to 1859. Now, I'm not exactly sure why LC was added, except that I think some of the Congress men on the library committee who were also promoting the notion at the Smithsonian said, why not throw in the Library of Congress? 
But all of this ended in 1859. Spofford came in 1861 and looked around and said, my gosh, we've got to get going on this copyright deposit notion if my idea of a national library is going to have any validity at all. Uh, so he, Spofford worked really as acting librarian of Congress for four years and finally uh, was named the librarian of Congress in 1865. And he was finally in a position to, even though he'd prepared the groundwork, to really to go to town, and he did. He uh, went ahead and applied Jefferson's logic to the collections of the Library of Congress in ways that probably would have even surprised Jefferson. His eye was on copyright, though, and he immediately got the deposit law changed, so one copy of a the deposit came back to the Library of Congress, but registration was handled in other places, but he got copyright, one copyright deposit coming back. He got an appropriation of $160,000 to expand the, the, the Library of Congress's room out on each side so there would be more space. He started to rely on his own political skills that he developed back in Cincinnati, and who should be the head of the Joint Committee on the Library in those days but Spofford's old Cincinnati hand, friend, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, a congressman who went on to become president. And Spofford was the founder back in Cincinnati of the Cincinnati Literary Club to which Hayes belonged. And so they were old friends, and so Hayes did whatever Spofford wanted him to do. Joseph Henry, down at the foot of the hill, said, hey, here is this extra space. Mr. Spofford, would you like the whole Smithsonian Library? Spofford said yes. In 1866, the 40,000 volume Smithsonian Library was moved up to fill one of those rooms immediately. Uh, this is the basis today of the Library of Congress's really science collections, its collections of publications from learned societies, and its uh, government, uh, many of its foreign government publications. Uh, Henry threw in the exchange system. The Library of Congress, starting in 1867, became the recipient of all the Smithsonian exchanges. Anything coming in from other countries came to the Library of Congress. Uh, Spofford persuaded Congress to buy Peter Force's collection of Americana, uh, the greatest collection of Americana, one of the greatest collections of Americana in private hands at this time. And interestingly enough, the nationalistic argument that he used with Congress was that doggone British Museum Library over there has a better collection of Americana, acquired, of course, by Henry Stevens for Panizzi, than this country. Isn't that shocking? We must appropriate money to get to build up our own Americana collections so, in fact, our scholars don't have to rely on foreign resources um, and we can start building research collections here. Uh, all in all, he was a, Spofford had this vision, he was a collection builder, and finally, the copyright law of 1870 was really the culmination of his collection building efforts because he decided that the only way to make certain all copyright came to the Library of Congress was to get the whole registration and deposit system centralized at the Library of Congress. And up until then, the Patent Office had had a major piece of this. So what did Spofford do? He went to his old friend from Cincinnati, who happened to be the head of the, the Commissioner of Patents in 1869, a man named Samuel Fisher, and said, how would you feel about this? And Mr. Fisher said, fine, Ainsworth, if you want it. Uh, he went to a man named Thomas Jenks, who was the senator who was, had a bill pending to revise the patent law and gave him several reasons why he felt this change should be made. Most of them were, interestingly enough, practical reasons. He said it was a more efficient way to, uh, to really handle this. And uh, 
Mr. Jenks went ahead and attached this to the, the uh, as an amendment to the uh, copy of the patent law of 1870, and it passed. And suddenly, uh, the Library of Congress was the central agency for copyright registration and deposit in the United States. This is this little office of, by then, nine people um, in the west front of the Capitol. Uh, one of Spofford's statements was to Mr. Jenks, and his, he outlined seven reasons why this change should be made. And he was thinking ahead. He said, we should have one comprehensive library in this country, and that library belonging to our nation. Uh, whose aim it should be to preserve uh, what it is not appropriate for other libraries to acquire. So Spofford basically uh, was, had an archival turn of mind, uh, and he had a concept of, the, of the, what a national library should be that was modeled again on, on, on Panizzi. I mean, basically, it was a centralized, permanent accumulation of national literature, which should be used for the benefit of the American Congress and the American people using kind of the Jeffersonian link of the, the Congress and the people being served by the same library. But if you think back to what I mentioned about Charles Coffin Jewett, Jewett was doing more in his concept of a national library. Uh, Jewett really had a bibliographical center going at the Smithsonian with his concept. Uh, Swafford, however, never viewed a national library as really the center of a, a national system of libraries. He thought it was a great national accumulation of literature and that that's what it should be. So there is a, a basic difference uh, in those two views. Now, one of my other characters I'm going to introduce is a man named Herbert Putnam, who you will see reverts back to what Jewett thought a national library should be. But this, we have to wait to get to Mr. Putnam to the, the end of the century. In the meantime, Mr. Spofford, and I don't know, I'm sure he didn't think this through very well, but I. I know he was so eager, he was so eager to build this national collection, and copyright was such an opportunity that he went for it, and he got it, and he was overwhelmed. And in 1871, one year later, in his annual report to Congress, he said, help. 1872, he said, I must we must build a new building. We are going to be out of space very soon. In 1873, he prepared and published specifications for a grand new building for the Library of Congress, modeled on the, the concept of the British Library Dome, uh, the central reading room. And Congress, the Joint Committee on the Library, which turns out to be really not very powerful, especially after Spofford came in, but they approved this, and bids went out, and there was a wonderful design competition, and all kinds of crazy designs came in for a new building. This was before Congress had approved this idea at all the Congress as a whole. No money had been appropriated, and it turned out that no money would be appropriated for another 16 years for this building. In the meantime, Mr. Spofford was slowly submerging. He was adding staff, but it was only to try to handle copyright, and the registration turned out to be a terrific problem for him. Uh, and in 1875, here is a quote out of his annual report. In 1875, he ran out of space in the library, completely out of space. And this is an example of the Spofford prose, which you'll see both combines this rather rotund way of getting at a point uh, with, uh, this is as close as he came to threatening Congress, but he still did it in a, a way that I think that Congress would uh, be, some congressman would be sympathetic. He said in his 1875 annual report, it is impossible to believe that the legislature of a great and intelligent people will continue to neglect making some suitable provision to preserve and extend this noble collection. 
If left in its present condition, the neglect of Congress will soon place its librarian in the unhappy predicament of presiding over the greatest chaos in America. <laughs> and it turned out to be the greatest chaos in America. Spofford started using other rooms in the, in the Capitol. He soon filled 16 rooms in the Capitol with these copyright deposits. And what is remarkable is that very little damage was done to these wonderful materials that were coming in because let me remind you that the copyright law in 1870 brought in not just books but also pamphlets, maps, charts, musical compositions, prints, engravings, and after 1865 photographs. Uh, so these wonderful Americana special collections were coming in and Spofford just was piling things up here and piling things up there and trying to get this building. Well, it was a real circus. And finally, in 1886, 10 years later, the money was, uh, the building was authorized. Uh, a new plan was selected. A new site was selected. At one time, the building was going to be down on, on the mall. At one time, it was over <clears throat> in another part of the city of Washington. Finally, they selected Capitol Hill right across from the uh, Congress. And of course, that's an enormously <coughs> symbolic and important location because today we now have three buildings occupying this valuable real estate on Capitol Hill, uh, which is very symbolic, I think, in, in many ways, because in one sense, the Library of Congress symbolizes libraries and culture on Capitol Hill um, in ways that other institutions don't. And at any rate, the, the building was placed on Capitol Hill, and who should be the architect of the Capitol grounds who uh, made the first complaint about the placement of the building, none other than Frederick Law Olmsted, who noticed that when they placed this building, they cut off the view up Pennsylvania Avenue. If you look back out to the southeast, if you know Washington, you will see that the Library of Congress building, the main building, now called the Jefferson Building, is squarely um, on the, the act, cuts across the axis of Pennsylvania, between Pennsylvania Avenue and the Capitol. And I'm talking about going east, not west. But at any rate, there was debate about the placement of the building, but Mr. Spofford was so grateful he didn't care. And he was very grateful also that people like uh, uh, Poole, the librarian, Fred, William Frederick Poole, and others who had complained about the art, this grand monumental architecture, uh, Spofford responded to them by saying he would not have this grand building uh, relegated to, uh, I think he used the word dwarfed, to a series of packing box, case, box cases. This was kind of the mode that William Frederick Poole's feeling was that kind of departmental libraries were important, a series of reading rooms, and that the old central dome was out, that that was an inefficient way to handle the library. But Spofford's point was, you know, his notion of a national library required the kind of building that the Jefferson Building, the main building, is today. And of course, once that building was opened in 1897, what else could it be but a monument to culture, a monument to libraries, and in effect, a, a national library, at least as Ainsworth Rand Spofford uh, visualized it. I left out one amusing thing, and I often think of what Mr. Spofford must have thought of this. Before the building was authorized, in 1882, and Congress was reluctant to appropriate this money for this building, they actually held hearings on the notion of raising the Capitol Dome 50 feet to accommodate the Library of Congress. And Mr. Spofford and the engineer of the Capitol had to testify, I guess, with a straight face that it probably was not a good idea to uh, raise the dome of the Capitol 50 feet because it just wouldn't 
provide enough space for the future. I'm not sure what they said, but nonetheless, the monumental building was opened in 1897. By then, Mr. Spofford had built the Library of Congress's staff up to 42 people, um, all the way to 42. But what's interesting is that 28 of the 42 were dealing with copyright, and most of it was trying to register copyright. I mean, the deposits were just going every place. The Library of Congress in 1897 had 840,000 volumes. It had become the largest library in this country right after the Smithsonian Library came up and the Peter Force Library was added. The Library of Congress became the largest library in, in the country. Um, by 1897, there were 840,000 volumes. Roughly half of that was because of copyright deposit. But in these marvelous um, collections of maps, music, and graphic arts, at least 90% of those collections were because of the copyright deposit. So uh, Jewett was right, Spofford was right. I mean, the, the way to build that National Library collection was, was through copyright in spite of the difficulties. Now, the difficulties are, one, the space problem I've already described. It gets worse. Mr. Spofford stopped all cataloging about 1882. He stopped all publication. Um, in 1895, there was a very embarrassing investigation by the Treasury Department of the copyright accounts because Mr. Spofford was at least $30,000 short. Um, he said he didn't know what happened, and indeed he didn't, because once the move was made to the new building, over $30,000 in uncashed money orders, checks, and cash was found slipped into books that had been moved over. Mr. Spofford had been so overwhelmed, uh, he just took the money that came in with the copyright registration fee, stuck it with the book, and pretty soon the books got shipped off to these other rooms. And there is a Treasury document exonerating him and saying they found all of this and he was telling the truth all the way along. And uh, it's really quite an incredible story. But what happened in the meantime was that the American Library Association by now, with whom Spofford had had very little dealings, and I'll remind you that the ALA was created in 1876. Uh, Spofford had not had many dealings with ALA. Uh, part of the reason was that, if I've already indicated, he, wasn't, he was too busy building this collection to worry about other libraries. Secondly, his real interest was in acquisitions and bibliography, and it wasn't in classification or cataloging or some of the new modern library techniques that the ALA was mostly interested in. Um, and finally, as I said, Spofford really wasn't of a a cooperative turn of mind in particular. I mean, he knew what he wanted and, and he went after it. Um, but prior to the move into the new building, which did occur in 1897 with these books with all of these dollars in them, uh, the American Library Association sent several representatives to a very important set of hearings, congressional hearings about the Library of Congress on the verge of its move into the new building. And essentially, this is where Congress finally woke up and they said, what have we here? <laughs> you know, here is this monumental building, uh, which is enormous. We have 42 employees over here in the Capitol. You know, they will rattle around in this building. What should be the functions of this library? Uh, is it really a, the National Library that Mr. Spofford says it is? And if it is, what should be a National Library? I mean. So Congress held hearings on the reorganization of the Library of Congress in the November of 1897. 
And the ALA, through a man named, sometimes we forget he was a person, a man named R.R. Bowker, uh, wrote an article in Library Journal called the American National Library. And he said the following. He said, no more interest, this is really quite a statement, <clears throat> no more interesting problem has been presented in the whole history of libraries than that of the reorganization of the library of this nation in this new building. And essentially, Bowker, Melville Dewey, Herbert Putnam, who was the new librarian of the Boston Public Library, these are the, the new wave coming in, uh, they, they were un, unhappy with Spofford. They felt Spofford was really too old-fashioned. So they wanted to be part of these hearings to present what they thought the new National Library should be. And I, I do have a, a quote I'll share with you that came out in the... Uh, what Spofford had said, this, maybe this is what got the people upset in the beginning, all the way back in 1876 when ALA was formed, Spofford was invited as Librarian of Congress to attend the founding convention of ALA. And he refused, and he said he wouldn't come because, quote, I have always entertained insuperable objections to figuring in conventions, since they are usually mere wordy outlets for impracticables and pretenders. Well, he softened and gave a paper on copyright, interestingly enough, at the last day of the convention, but he did not participate. And nonetheless, they elected him one of the four vice presidents because by then they realized it was good to have the library, probably good to have the Librarian of Congress involved. But these hearings, which are really quite remarkable, and they were published, and it's a 200-page it's a volume, conducted uh, by a congressman, um, the House of Representatives, the head of the Library Committee, and he quizzes Spofford all about the history of the Library of Congress and other national libraries. And there's a chart at the back where Spofford had written other national libraries to find out how big they were, how they operated, how many catalogers, uh, what their services were. And one of the most thorough responses, I'm happy to report, did come from the British Museum Library, who even went down and detailed the, their entire staff. And so in this chart, you have the names of the char people from the British Museum Library that are in this particular this back of these hearings. But nonetheless, all of this was brought together, and Mr. Spofford also gave the congressman a tour of the building, and that's interesting for someone interested in the history of LC, saying this is going to be here, and I visualize this here, and here how this is, this, this is going to operate. Well, what happened was that Dewey and the progressives in the American Library Association had their own notion and told Congress what a national library should be. And they said it shouldn't be this great accumulation that Spofford, I mean, that's part of it. That it had built, but instead a national library, and this was a statement that Herbert Putnam and Melville Dewey agreed on, should be a center to which the libraries of the whole country can turn for inspiration, guidance, and practical help, which can be rendered so economically and efficiently in no other possible way. And the congressman said, what do you mean? They said, centralized cataloging should be done cataloging should be done centrally by this national library. It should lend its books. It should develop a national union catalog. It should develop an exchange system. It should send out advice to other libraries, other, have a training programs for other libraries, all of things which were quite beyond uh, Spofford. Well, it turned out, as things often happen with Congress, that before there could be a report on these hearings, the reorganization occurred. And it occurred as part of the appropriations bill that was all the time chugging along. And they didn't get the report out in time, so some congressman said to somebody else, well, we're worried about the reorganization. What will we do? Well, let's just plug it in this appropriations bill, which is what they did. And here were a couple of very important things that happened in the reorganization. 
and I do know that they must have talked with, with some of the American Library Association leaders because in essence they agreed to give the Library of Congress authorization to expand all of its services depending on what the librarian decided and Congress took the power from its own joint library committee, which by the way Spofford had taken from them decades before, took that power, the authority to run the Library of Congress and gave it to the, the Office of the Librarian of Congress. The office was given the power to set the rules for the Library of Congress and to hire and fire. The Joint Committee was still in the picture, but not with these particular powers. So in, in essence, they became advisors. This again, I've already mentioned, was the first time that the Senate, the Congress got in the picture to confirm the President's appointment of a librarian. Uh, the staff of the Library of Congress was increased from 42 to 108. So there would be 108 people rattling around in the Jefferson building. And a new librarian was appointed. Spofford by then was 71 years old. And a new librarian named John Russell Young was appointed by President McKinley as of July the 1st. And all of this reorgan 1897, and all of this reorganization then was to take effect just prior, as it turns out, to the move into the, the building. Um, Mr. Spofford became chief assistant librarian and continued, and he did this apparently very cheerfully, and I think he realized that uh, he'd achieved his building and was made chief assistant, and his office was put right in the middle of the uh, main reading room. He had an office to the side, but then he spent most of his time in the center desk. But interestingly enough, he also became really in effect and became as librarian L.C.'s first rare book librarian because he started selecting once the books got moved and there was an attempt to organize them and to see what had accumulated in all of this time uh, Mr. Spofford continued his tradition of pulling aside rarities and marking office and so to this day you will see the office designation at the Library of Congress means in effect the old rare book collection which Mr. Spofford had started and I think that he was probably pretty happy to get back to acquisitions and worrying about that after uh, going through what he had gone through to achieve uh, the building. Now, Mr. John Russell Young was librarian for only a year and a half, and he was a newspaperman, a journalist, a good administrator, someone who, however, did accept kind of the general charge from Congress to continue to explore the proper roles of a library, of, of a national library. But Young refused to do things like the Lend books. I mean, he still kind of followed the grand European concept, uh, and, but he was a former diplomat. In fact, he'd gone around the world with General Grant. He used to work for the Philadelphia uh, paper, and he wrote a book called Around the World with General Grant. And he, uh, it's interesting to see in our archives, he wrote letters to all his diplomatic friends saying, and, and printed a little sheet saying, here is the Library of Congress, and now we are expanding our scope of our collections, he cited Jefferson, the same statements I've cited, and said we are going international and we would be interested in books about the cultures in which you are posted as diplomats. Please send them to the Library of Congress. Mr. Young uh, was ill, uh, died, and the same newspapers that were lamenting his death immediately started speculating about the new Librarian of Congress. And that new librarian, the ALA's candidate, was none other than Herbert Putnam, who was at that time, had testified in the hearings. Putnam was the incoming president of ALA, the Boston Public Librarian, and lo and behold, Putnam got the job and had the support of Congress, had certainly had the support of the American library community, 
and made certain basic decisions about the Library of Congress's services to other libraries. Essentially, he made the Jewett, took up where Jewett had left off. Uh, by, now, by then, technology had changed. Of course, many things had changed. Putnam began, well, in addition to uh, cataloging, setting up our Library of Congress's own classification scheme, began the printing and the sale of Library of Congress printed cards. And of course, that is what made the Library of Congress the hub of the American Library <coughs> of an updated version of Jewett's abortive attempt at producing stereotype plates. Putnam immediately inaugurated interlibrary loan. He got the laws changed. He felt that was a, an important purpose that the Library of Congress should serve when someone questioned him about it. He said he would take a chance on losing books. He would rather know that a book might be used than to have a book back on the shelf that would not be used. I mean, what a complete change in, in philosophy. Um, but he also assumed, brought the Library of Congress into a leadership role among American libraries and really linked the, the interests of the Library of Congress with the broader interests of American librarianship, uh, which Spofford had not done. Now, did ALA win? Did those leaders get what they wanted? Well, the question is an iffy one because Bowker and Dewey and others, if you go back and read what happened at this reorganization period, they had hoped, and in some cases assumed, that this reorganization of the Library of Congress that turned out to go lickety-split fast, too fast for them, would at least result in the designation of the Library of Congress as the official national library, capital N, capital L, and perhaps even in its transfer to the executive branch of government, out from under the dominance of Congress. And one of the articles in the LJ at this crucial period uh, called for Congress to, re naively called for the Congress to renounce the right, now 96 years old, which it holds in the Library of Congress. Let the Library of Congress be reconstituted by statute together with the copyright business as an executive agency under one executive head with a board of regents such as the Smithsonian now has. Let the Congress give the nation a real library and not a monument of stone. Well, no such thing has ever been seriously considered by the Congress, and the irony is, of course, that at least in that first, that first period, and, and I'm moving right up to just really 1901, you can peg it, at, by 1901, Jeff, uh, Jefferson Putnam had been in office two years. At the end of 1901, he published a remarkable annual report, which I wish I had here, it's called a manual, and it not only describes every activity in the Library of Congress with pictures, but it's done in such a way that this will be a model for other libraries to follow. I mean, he was following up on what he felt should be the role of a national library. And furthermore, in that same report, he discards the British Museum Library as the model. And he says, in effect, we've bypassed them. We've bypassed the Europeans. Uh, we now are the most modern, up-to-date library in the world, and uh, we, from now on, will be the model. So, in effect, the, the National Library, which the American Library Association wanted, probably came into effect in those first, that first decade of the, 19, of the 20th century, but it, the Library of Congress remained under the direct and the strict control of the Congress, and that is still the case today. Um, but that, of course, another irony is that that's what Thomas Jefferson and Ainsworth Rand Spofford thought was the right thing.
thing to happen. They thought that you served the people by serving the Congress and that it should have that kind of ambiguous but important democratic relationship. Finally, um, the last word I'm going to give to Mr. Spofford. During his, re not retirement, he died in office. He died in 1907. I'm sure he died at the center reference desk in the Library of Congress after having been there from 1861. If you can imagine, that is a long period of time to serve an institution. 1861 into 1907 on the job all the time. He, Terry, he will enjoy this. Uh, Mr. Spofford started teaching in a new library school that was founded in Washington, D.C. at Columbia University, now George Washington University. And he published a book called A Book for All Readers, which is really Spofford's ideas about books, reading, um, librarianship, in which you see very quickly he wasn't the least bit interested in cataloging classification, but terribly interested in books and book selection and uh, similar topics. Um, and in that, in that uh, book, there, there are some marvelous quotations, and I'm going to close with this one. And I just pose a question to you. How did Ainsworth Transpofford achieve so much in the period, especially in the period from 1865 to 1870? Well, I'll tell you how he did it. He knew a secret. He knew how to get rid of bores, a quote from a book for all readers. Mr. Spofford says, the bore is commonly one who, having little or nothing to do, inflicts himself upon the ones whom he credits with knowing the most, the librarians. Receive him courteously, but keep on steadily at the work you are doing when he enters. If you are skillful, you can easily do two things at once. For example, answer your idler friend or your bore, and revise title cards, or mark a catalog, or collate a book, or look up a quotation, or write a letter at the same time. Never lose your good humor. Never say that your time is valuable or that you are busy. Never hint at his going away, but never quit your work. Answer questions cheerfully, but keep on, allowing nothing to take your eyes off your business. By and by, he will take the hint, if not wholly pachydermatous, and go away of his own accord. By pursuing this course, I have saved infinite time and got rid of infinite bores by one and the same process. Thank you very much.